ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Shark Brain, episode four. My name is Jake Newton. Thank you guys for listening. All of you who have listened in these past few weeks has been great. For those of you who are just joining us, this is a show about the creative process. It's about getting to the bottom of why we do what we do as creative people. Uh, it's a uh, it's inclusive towards everybody. Everybody needs a creative side of their brain that they tap into and explore for various different reasons. And in this particular instance, I'm talking to the people that I know. And I know musicians, which is actually the old English pronunciation of that word. Found that out today via the internet. Musicians. Yes. Sounds like you're a sneak. So yes, on this particular episode, I interviewed musician. John Titterington of the Roofbeam Carpenters. We talk about growing up in Christian households, with both John and I did. We have a context for that, and we tell some interesting things that are a little inside. We talk about the fear that cripples you and keeps you from leaping and doing what you actually want to do, which seems to be a constant recurrence and is a theme in my life, absolutely, but in John's as well. Before we get too much into that, I wanted to just sort of check in with you guys and thank you guys for reaching out those of you who have about the podcast about the situation with the mold at the house I had a mold company come out and take a look at it i had a very adult moment where i'm sort of watching this guy test and turn to me and say certain things that i'm supposed to know and i, I don't know I, it felt weird i felt like a little kid with my dad's clothes on trying to talk to this guy about what to do next and and how to remediate mold should it show up but I got through it. I, I faked my way uh, through an adult conversation about homes. It, uh, it felt strange. I don't know if I'm ever going to have that feeling of competency when it comes to those sort of things. I still feel a little bit like I've been sent on errands by my parents when I go into Home Depot to grab something. And I don't know if that'll ever change. I don't know if I ever want it to change. Maybe I want to just live in a perpetual state of youthfulness maybe i'm maybe i'm crying out to go back to an in utero state maybe everything about adulthood still frightens me and i am smack dab in the middle of it maybe that's what's going on could that be a denial of self perhaps perhaps maybe i am shirking adulthood like most every other person on this earth that was born after 1980 i don't know i don't know we we used to have these moments that were watershed moments in someone's life. When you were 18, you were drafted and you went in the army, at least if you were a guy. And you were sent overseas to another war where you were handed a gun and you were told to kill people. That'll do something to make you feel a grown-up. For better or worse, you came back and you married your college or your high school sweetheart and you had children. You had your second child by the time you were 23 and you were figuring it out. You woke up in the morning before the sun came up and you walked or you drove or you hitchhiked to work and you busted your ass at a job where you made things or you supervised people that made things and then you came home with money and bacon to borrow that old adage. We don't do that anymore. So I don't know what we're supposed to do. I don't know. What my role is as a man in the 21st century, I see a lot of us floundering, and I see a lot of us who've given up the floundering, who've given up the search for direction, and we're just we're just medicating ourselves. God knows I'm doing that. I 
I gotta stop with this Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Vine and oh, I just gotta stop it. Ah, oh, you know, it's a clamp on my brain, and it is keeping me from. God, God, I gotta think it's keeping me from my true self. It has to be. You just want someone to come along with a system of how to deintegrate yourself from the matrix and get yourself free. Oh, maybe that's what this is. Maybe that's what this will develop into. Maybe I am my own savior. Or not. Or not. Who knows? I want to thank everybody for coming out to the show on the 4th. It was an awesome turnout. Got to work through a few new songs. Brand new ones. They've been coming. It seems as though the uh, the riverbed is starting to fill up with a little bit of uh, creative juice. Uh, maybe it's this show. Maybe it's chalking it out with people. Maybe it's going to therapy. Maybe it's a combination of the two. But I definitely uh, have been able to write quite a bit more lately. And that's incredibly encouraging, especially to someone who has just felt like the the well was dry. Um, a lot of water analogies when it comes to creativity. I wonder what that is. Probably something primordial in us. But I want to thank those of you who came out to the show. And for those of you who obviously live in parts of the world that is not Los Angeles, uh, I'm going to be doing an online show soon, and I'll be announcing that. One of the miracles of the modern age that we're able to partake in. Look at that, Jake. That's something to be grateful for. Maybe that'll get you out of the funk that t- overtook you in the last half of this week. Boy, howdy, is it fun in my brain. Up and down and up and down. It's like a regular uh, amusement park ride, only with a lot lot more screaming, at least on the inside. I'm not really an open book when it comes to a lot of stuff like this, at least in my own personal life. But hell, I mean, I'll let you guys read the spine. It was a a rough, rough patches this week, too. A lot of really adult conversations had and a lot of heartache and a lot of inability to reconcile certain things on the immediate with my own heart and mind. So, there I am. An open nerve. Feeling every bit of wind. Trying to create the most conductive surface for which to catch lightning in a bottle. To distill it. To turn it into art. And to send it back out into the world to find other people magnetized towards it. I'm king of the metaphor! Give me a dollar! Actually, I think I met a guy that said that in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. He said something and then, Give me a dollar! So how do I jump from this getting into John Titterington? Well, I'll tell you how I do it. I simply just glide on through to it because I'm a professional. We talk about neurosis in this conversation, John and I. We talk about what it is to leap over the fear that cripples you. When you make a huge decision to pursue this life that we've pursued, it's very, very, oh, it's it's nerve wracking and it feels impossible. And if it didn't feel so incredibly all encompassing in its mind numbing fear, then I think more people would do it. But obviously they don't. So we get into that. Uh, Without further ado, I want to take you to a conversation that I had. With John Titterington of the Roofbeam Carpenters, Shark Brain. Uh, so, uh, John Titterington of the Roofbeam Carpenters, good to have you in the studio, man. Thank you for coming in and doing this. Oh, of course, man. Yeah, dude. 
John Chedrington, I've known for a few years, and he's got his own project titled after the J.D. Salinger story, right? Yeah, the J.D. Salinger wrote a novella called uh, Raise High, the Roof Beam Carpenters, mm-hmm. um, which is, he's quoting Sappho. Um, he was a Greek poet, I believe. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's... Uh, if you if you haven't read it, you, it I think it's a it's a must read for any American. I think really, um, yeah, yeah. Hmm. See, I I've, I love Salinger. I thought I had read everything, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part, because he had a very short career, we, a very interesting career, in the fact that he kind of felt like he said everything that he was going to say, and then he was kind of done. It, it, you can read it that way, either that or he went crazy. Is, that's is another way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's probably true. I mean, in likelihood, I mean, who would turn down the idea of like creating more and more work and being able to express yourself? So you're probably right. I like to romanticize it, but like romanticizing it just makes me that much more of a Salinger fan. Because yeah. I think like many young youths uh, growing up at some point, if you're if you got a brain in your head, you read Catcher in the Rye. And then you take that, you know, depending on how long... You want to be in that mode. How long you feel like you're Holden Caulfield? I think every every artist guy has felt at some point. Ah, oh, maybe I'm a little Holden Caulfield. Yeah, I never felt like I was Holden though. Really? Uh, I do. I, I get it a little bit more now. When I first read the book, um, I didn't realize. I didn't understand that he was having a nervous breakdown. Like I was too young to to. Uh, well, I wasn't too young. I wasn't paying enough attention mm-hmm. I, I, uh, to, to understand the, the context that, one, he's an unreliable narrator, and yeah. two, he's doing stuff that crazy people do. See, like, that's, that to me, I think, very indication right now that I, I didn't even know that it was about a nervous breakdown. I, I was an English major for a brief period of time in college uh-huh. before I dropped out, which is was one of my nervous breakdowns itself. So I think that... Uh, <laughs> I yeah I didn't even know that was a nervous breakdown. Yeah, well at the beginning of the book he talks about how he's in a he's in a hospital. Uh-huh. Um he's he's in like a rest facility or something. He you know uh because it's Holden telling you this he's he's obviously like gilding the lily and a, a little bit false truths. He, he, I, I wouldn't say he's he's not lying. He's just saying like yeah, you know this happened before I got sick and had to come here for a while. But I, that's yeah. something you miss if you're if you're not like really paying attention. Yeah, or even uh, even just thinking this is from my point of view, I'm remembering reading that book and, and I was thinking like, well, <laughs> they're just putting him in there cuz they don't understand him cuz he's such a free spirit. Well, later in the book there's a part where he's walking across the street saying something like saying something like, Allie, don't let me fall through the crack. He's talking to his brother who died. Yeah. But when you remove it from the narration and think about what he's actually doing, he's walking through the streets of New York saying, don't let me fall through the cracks. And then he asks a guy where the ducks are. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. You're right. Because, But because you know you have his internal monologue, you can tell what he's doing. But when you remove the inner monologue and just look at his actions from like a standard by, he's gone fucking nuts yeah okay well now that makes perfect sense and now i think i have to rethink a lot of my early (laughs) 20s because of what you just said well it's i'm I'm really glad you brought up salinger because that's a really uh that was one of the first things that hit me in the gut when i was very young in terms of like oh this is really great art Mm -hmm. um my mom uh, in a very forward thinking, she during the summer she would make me and my brother and sister uh, take typing lessons with like through software. Oh wow! Um, 
and which like really, you know, like I have, I have excellent typing skills. Uh, I've got carpal tunnel now, but, uh, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But, uh, um, my typing skills have always been pretty good. And, uh, a lot, you know, a lot of it had to do with her, like, you know, in the summer it was like for 15 minutes a day, you know, uh, use this typing and typing software to get your typing skills up. One of the things that was in that software was, uh, excerpt from catcher in the rye. And really? I remember, you know, they would have you type out things from like, I think F Scott's Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, just literary classics. Okay. Anyway, all that saying there was an excerpt from catcher in the rye where he talks about going into a phone booth and calling like an old girlfriend to see if she wanted to like grab a malted. Mm-hmm. And, I it was totally bereft of any context. Yeah. It was just and there was no swearing in it, uh, which means it was a very specific part of the book. Yeah, um, <laughs> narrows it down quite a bit. But I re- I remember even at that age, you know, I'm eight or nine, thinking it really the the thinking like not not having this conscious thought, but on a very deep level, I recognize it was really beautiful prose. Yeah. There was something about the way he was putting those sentences together that I was, I was like, there's, there's juice here. Like, mm-hmm. this is really good. And I would, I loved having that, uh, section of prose come up to like type through it. Like I, and you're eight or nine, this is when your, your consciousness is starting to really separate from your identity of like just being a kid and actually starting mm-hmm. to explore the world. What musically was, was that moment for you? Uh, that was the record Magical Mystery Tour. Um, there was a song on there that I had heard on one of my bro- older brother's CDs, uh, I Am the Walrus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, what specifically about it? There was f- just the soundscape, for one. It's got... It's got like a Wurlitzer or yeah. a Ro- I, I think it's a Wurlitzer playing the main line. Just is like a really dark piano or electric piano riff. That's yeah. very. It's very brooding mm-hmm. and it's it's just really mellow and cool and trippy. Yeah, and and also just you've got those close mic cello like a string quartet playing this weird George Martin shit. Yeah, don't forget about the the bizarro lyrics. Of- and the, yeah, and the lyrics are really dark and subversive and sexual. And for like a nine year old hearing John Lennon talk about like you know like there's a line about the about like a policeman oinking like a pig yeah and like boy you've been a naughty girl you let your knickers down yeah so you got like that transsexual ideas going on and then you know you picture like a pants being on. It's, it's this weird sort of dionysian yeah and for me like i'm nine putting this together i'm like okay knickers i think i'm pretty sure that means underwear yeah and not having i, I don't have like a visceral understanding of sex at mm-hmm. that point i just have like a, it's just this like you know it's like this undiscovered country yeah i like, no, you grew like, up. You grew up uh, in a Christian household, and well, I should say specifically like a, a modern, modern uh, Judeo Christian uh, with its own subculture kind yeah, of household. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's very, it's a very specific thing. Kind of like yeah, this American Protestant, like mm-hmm. very Baptist influenced 
kind of non-denominational Christianity, which mm-hmm. is a very specific thing, but... It can I, kind I, of encompass its own world. I think that, uh, like, I grew up in the same thing, too, so I can speak mm-hmm. to the fact that it's almost... It created its own verisimilitude. Like, we had our own bands, we had our own clothing, we had our own way of speaking, we had our own uh, our own yeah. sub, our own subculture. It's very similar to if you grew up American, middle-class, Jewish, mm-hmm. like, people who have the same experience, like you and I had. That I mean, that's, I think, one of the reasons why why we were able to connect so quickly absolutely is very much like people who grew up uh, american jew regardless of if they were like in california or new york mm-hmm. well you, or you have like jewish friends that say like oh yeah i went met him at stay away camp and you're like what's stay away camp i have yeah. no idea what that is yeah or, or, they're all bar mitzvah bat mitzvah it's mm-hmm. this thing that they all share mm-hmm. and very similarly i you know you and i had had a very uh had kind of the same thing. Like, well, it's very specific, and I think that you know, you were, um, we were talking up in the kitchen earlier about uh, about music and and how uh, we had different. Um, I I recall this one uh, poster that was up on my youth group wall that had all the secular bands and then all the Christian bands <laughs> and the ones that you would like the Christian bands that would be exactly like the secular bands like don't worry about yeah. it it's almost like if you like Smashing Pumpkins you're gonna love Starflyer Fifty Nine and you don't even need to listen yeah. to Smashing Pumpkins do, do you, how great is that do you like Operation Ivy well have you seen Slick Shoes <laughs> Slick uh, Shoes dude I did see Slick Shoes I saw that's yeah. the one thing you get to see everybody in this circuit and the crowds are a lot less that's 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 one good thing about yeah. it. Yeah. And so, uh, you grew up, uh, did you grow up going to Christian shows at all? Um, not really, man. I mean, yes. Uh, my first concert was, uh, uh, OC Supertones. Nice. So yeah, man. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was the thing. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't, I might've seen Five Iron Frenzy at one point mm-hmm. for, 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 uh, those of you who remember when ska was like a thing. Oh, I remember when Third ska wave was ska. It was Third like, wave ska, man. I loved it. Like the midget punching, the, the, and it was yeah. half punk, half, half ska. So you had like that attitude, but then you also had, uh, like but, checkers. But for Jesus. But for Jesus, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's subjugated cultures that have been filtered through to become, uh, this ska. reappropriated by a different culture that has been reimagined and reappropriated by another different culture. But yeah, man, it was so, yeah, that was, that was that was that was the thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you uh, you grew up a band geek, uh-huh. I'm assuming and knowing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and how was that experience for you in high school? Were you a died in the wool band geek, or did you kind of move around to different cultures, or were you you locked solid in that music room? Uh, no, I was. Uh, I would like. I, yeah, it's it's really hard to talk about this kind of stuff without coming off like really uncharismatic and like kind of douchey. Mm-hmm. I had a very good experience in, in uh, junior high and high school, mm-hmm. but it was just cause I stayed busy, yeah. you know, like I didn't have time to get pulled into drama Drama, like, drugs or alcohol or being bullied. You were just being bullied. Yeah. I was bullied for like one week in junior high and then that that just stopped for right. some reason. One thing that worked in my favor is I mean, a lot of it was luck. Like my parents stayed in the same place. Mm-hmm. And if for, for someone who moves around a lot, it's a lot harder to get through high school and junior high because you don't have like, let's say in high school, you know, like, um, maybe, maybe someone's maybe like you piss someone off, you uh-huh. know, like for me, it would have been say, it would have been making someone feel like saying something snarky to someone. Cause yeah. I was that guy. Yeah. Like he would be like, Hey, I think I want to kick Titterington's ass. And maybe his friends are like, 
they played basketball with me yeah. since the time we were like in fourth grade. So you had a and, context with them. Yeah. And they're just like, eh, I don't know, man. You know, like he's, he's fine. You yeah. know, like if you, uh, because I grew up in the same town from age four to 18, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, I had a lot of friends. People wouldn't necessarily want to try to jump me in the parking lot. Cause it's yeah. like, Oh, he's like, yeah. Well, you're and, also from the Pacific Northwest. And I have to think that that's got to give a, uh, be a little informative of the type of person that just not. Yeah. Lives it wasn't, there. it wasn't South Philly for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I grew up in uh, Northern California, right outside of Yosemite national park. And there was quite a few people, half of whom were hippies. And the other half of the people just wanted to be away from infrastructure. And that, <laughs> that impulse in and of itself can be pretty dangerous. I like, can raise a certain kind of person. Yeah, f- for, yeah. Sh- for sure. Uh, anyway, so it was like I, I was in, I was in the, I wasn't one of the kids who ate lunch in the band room. Yeah, that that was a that was a thing. I would occasionally, like, be in the practice room, like trying to learn like a Ben Fold song or something. Mm-hmm. But if I was eating lunch with people, it wasn't in the band room. It was in the main area with like. So you were a social you know, guy. I, I flo- yeah, I, w- I was a social guy. I floated around. I wasn't in. I I didn't go to house parties or anything like that. Yeah, but I was on like the track team. Um, I was. Our high school had this thing called International Baccalaureate. Which oh yeah, was, IB. I remember IB. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's the that's the whole like I'm going to get a first year of college done mm-hmm. before I actually go there. That was very very ambitious. I think I did. I just joined uh, English for that because uh, there was a cute girl, Kaney Hanifton, and, <laughs> and I wanted to be near her. I needed to be near her. Yeah, so I I went to a good public high school in a up, upwardly mobile. You know, like mm-hmm. my classmates were all for the most part pretty intelligent folks yeah. who got out of our town and i have to tell you man i uh, just being on tour and going around the united states i've been to nearly every single one when i tour up in the pacific northwest even if i stop in a starbucks you know where people are supposed to be like these automatons that just know how to make several different coffee drinks uh-huh. i have the best conversations with people in the pacific northwest mm-hmm. i have the best shows with people in the pacific northwest it's like me being kind of snarky my own self and having all these different references towards idiosyncratic esoteric things if i bring them up people are right there with me it's a great thing it's like playing to playing preaching to the choir i guess yeah there's there's a certain sense like i remember listening to david carr who's an author um talk about like uh it was really funny hearing him hearing him say because he's got a really messed up voice um he t- you know he talks like this uh-huh. um he was on, he was a junkie for years and oh, i boy. think screamed his vocal cords out of submission <laughs> oh yeah there's this weird like civic pride thing that had like i i uh, parked my car and forgot to feed the meter and some lady he's talking about being in downtown portland some mm-hmm. lady like ran two blocks to flag me down to make sure i came back <laughs> like the, the populace in portland and a lot of the northwest is very there's there's a premium placed on like you know, being a good person yeah. and, and, you know, uh, being yeah, what educated. Do think, what do you think that comes from? Do you think it's just like-minded stuff? Like you think like the iron sharpening iron, so to speak, your peer group being your, your, what the level that you have to rise to? Ah, uh, I get, I don't know. I think part of it is being isolated from the rest of the country. Hmm. Um, because the Pacific Northwest is kind of its own thing. Yeah, I mean, you guys do have like a bunch of tundra b- between you and the Midwest and then a bunch of desert between you and California. I, I don't know, man. I, I really don't know what to, what to what to attribute it to. But there is a certain sense of like civic. Uh, but there it is, civic pride. It is what it is. Very yeah. bunch of heady people that make heady music. I mean, yeah. we were talking earlier about 
the way that Pacific Northwest colors music or whether it fosters it or not. I know that like there's a bunch of bands that are from the Pacific Northwest that I absolutely love. And there's a bunch of bands that I thought were from the Pacific Northwest that just ended up going there like yeah. moths to a flame. I, a lot of my favorite bands are from there. Like Sunday Day Real Estate was from Seattle. Absolutely. Man. Um, Death Cab for Cutie is another mm. big influence there. They're, uh, I mean, I, I think they're all over the place now, but they, they were out of, uh, one of the college towns, uh, man, this is really gripping radio. Yes, it really, well, it's going to be, it, we're going to edit it down to a, a fine distilled point. Be- where we, Bellingham. There we go. Oh, Bellingham. Uh, yeah. if, if my friend Mark Stoon is watching or is listening, I apologize for not remembering <laughs> your, your hometown. Oh you'll, yeah, you'll be, you'll be fine. He, he'll, he'll forgive you. Obviously you're under a lot of pressure because there's so many listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't believe me. And, and uh, yeah, Dandy Warhol's, by, by the way, one of my favorite uh, Portlandisms is people from Portland, if they're at any in, involved in the art scene, in any film, TV, like more conventional art, music, mm-hmm. they, they'll tell you things like, hey, yeah, man, I know the Dandies. It's like, <laughs> Oh yeah, the, oh, yeah. Ba- the band that's been there for like twenty five years. Yeah, it's like everybody knows. If you you know if you if you live in Portland for more than three years, you've you've you hung with know. the Dandies at some point. Absolutely, man. I I the last time I was up there, I was on tour with a couple of other singer songwriters, and we stayed with the Parson Redheads, who had. Just oh moved. yeah, yeah, yeah. We just they those guys they were an L A band for a long time, husband and wife team, and mm-hmm. uh, they're sweet people, but. They moved up to Portland, and I kind of was like, why on earth would anyone, you know, leave Los Angeles, kind of, you know, the mecca for entertainment? And as soon as I got there and got more of their vibe and the people that they hung out with, it made absolute sense. Well, if you're a band, like, oh, yeah. if, if if you're a band, like, for me, if I decided to stop, like, playing for other people mm-hmm. and just wanted to do a band, uh, like, I would I would probably move there. Yeah. If if you're doing the band thing and it's like a collective, like communal, oh yeah, like you and three other guys and none all of, of your are ambitions making, are tied together, right? Everyone is super supportive of in Portland, yeah, yeah, of other groups. If you're trying to make a living, making just doing music, then then that's a pretty rough town to do it in. Yeah, well, it seems there's not the, a lot of money floating around there. Speaking of making a living doing music, when when did you start playing music professionally? I kind of started doing it professionally in college. Where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to Point Loma, um, which is a liberal arts college in San Diego. There I met a guy named Brandon Walters and a guy named Daniel Ryan, Mm -hmm. who are both uh, kind of contributing members of the Roof Beam Carpenters. Yeah, and they and, and they play with various different other people, too. Yeah, Brandon has his own band called My Name Is You. Um, I met those guys, and we started doing like jazz gigs together in a town like San Diego where there's like a lot of old money floating around. Oh yeah. Um, you can do a lot of like, you know, private events. Yeah. Parties. They want something nice and in the background while they eat their swordfish that they can ignore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we suckled on the teat of our college too and did events there. As you was... must, well, they're taking enough money from you anyway. It's just, uh, it's all <laughs> circulation, man. It's all coming back through. I know, man. Um, so we would do, uh, we would do like jazz gigs and get paid mm-hmm. through there. And then, uh, Brandon, uh, met and then started touring with a artist named Greg Laswell. Mm-hmm. Who I, if I remember correctly, actually was a Point Loma. Another, and, another Point Loma alum. Yeah, yeah. But he, he had actually worked there at one point, right? You, <laughs> yeah, man, I, I don't want to tell tales out of school. He, yeah. he was a guidance counselor at Point Loma for a very, very brief 
period of time. Yeah, uh, I there, think there are know, some very, very funny stories about that. I've that heard a few I, of them. They're, and, you know, if not, we, they're not mine to tell. Liz, if we, we'll get him in here at some point and have him tell them. But. Brandon met him right before he got his record deal, and, and uh, Greg took him out on the road, and then eventually they got to a point where... They, even though they still lived in San Diego, they were driving up to L.A. like three times a week. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, they both moved to L.A. And, and Brandon kept, you know, he was he was kind of a cheerleader. Yeah. I was working an office job in San Diego mm-hmm. and really wanting to do music. And Brandon just kept, he would call me and be like, man, you can do this. Mm-hmm. You, you can do this. And why you didn't you think to. that you could do it? Um, it was just fear. Yeah. Um, I knew I knew I had the skill to to do music full time. Yeah, but it's it's really uh, L.A. is a scary place if if you from from the outside look from the outside looking. I'm sure in. hell is a scary place from the inside, man. I mean, it's, from the inside looking out, it's it's pretty scary. It's too. very scary, man. I, I I myself I don't know if you're of a similar ilk uh, that I am, and I'm pretty sure that you are, but. Uh, in not doing the thing that you you know that you can do, it's kind of safe to know that uh, just to feel that. Uh, let me rephrase that. I guess in not doing the thing that you know that you can do and and deferring it, you still have the option of not failing at it, but knowing that you can do it. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was. It was definitely like. I mean. I and granted, I was miserable at the time too. Mm. Not because my job. Not because I had a bad job. I had a great job at the time, but. Uh, I would wake up in the middle of the night, like crying. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> just just I was so unhappy. from malcontent. Yeah, man. I was just you know I I I, I was like I don't want to be here. I want to mm. be I want to be out on the road. I want to be doing music. Yeah. Like uh, I saw how I mean having an office job. It's a good life, you know. Yeah. And especially in a town like San Diego, where if you I mean, you can do absolutely nothing. You can work at uh, Best Buy and then go home and you're five minutes from the beach. And you have a kick-ass life and just and, like barbecue out on the porch and then go yeah. in and watch a show and then maybe like, you know, go windsurfing or paddleboarding in the morning. When I, uh, when I graduated college, there was a group of people who were a bit older than me. There may be 10, you know, seven to 10 years older than me. They had all come from my college as well mm-hmm. and they were all still hanging out and... My granted, this is uh, this is a little condescending, and I don't mean to condescend to 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 those people, but uh, but yeah, well, there there was this idea that I had. Some of my friends have heard me say this a lot uh, when I'm describing San Diego. It's like, oh man, I just graduated college. I'm just gonna get a job at Guitar Center and uh, (laughs) just just really get my shit together. Oh my God, I'm 38. Like that was the, that was my view and granted that's probably, probably, uh, off a little bit, but, uh, I didn't want to be, you know, I was like, I need to get out of here naturally. And, uh, Brandon kept just cheerleading me and being like, dude, you can do this. You just Mm -hmm. need to get up here. Mm -hmm. And And that discontent kept on roiling over and over again. What was the thing that Mm -hmm. set you over the edge that made you leave? Uh, it, there wasn't a, I mean, it was a gradual process. I wouldn't say. It, it, from then on, it just became like, okay, now problem solved. Like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get to LA? Mm-hmm. There, one of my best friends I grew up with was graduating film school around that time, and he and a couple of his friends were planning on moving to LA. And so I got in touch with them and was like, we need to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to do it now before we all get 
cushy jobs yeah. and are making like 60 grand a year. Yeah. Working weddings in various different capacities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we, we just did it, you know, it took us about a year of planning and them, you know, taking like documentaries and going to Hawaii and stuff. But mm-hmm. eventually we all got it together and four of us moved to a house in Glendale and then, and these are the lost boys, right? These are the lost boys. Yeah. I have a, in one of my songs I refer to, I have a song called San Fernando where there's a line where I say outside my window, I hear the lost boys drunk. Mm-hmm. And it's just referring to those, those guys. I really wanted to lionize those guys. Yeah. Um, and this the, is a core group of guys that you moved up to LA with and they are all in, I remember I'd go over to you guys' house and it was just, uh, I don't know. It felt like a clubhouse. It, it was, I mean, it was college part two for sure. Absolutely. It was, it, it was its own thing, but it was, it was so much fun. Yeah. The amount of alcohol and cholesterol that was just in that immediate <laughs> vicinity. I mean, you guys all like ate. Well, it was weird. It was weird too for me. I've never been a huge partier and I went to a school where that was a dry campus. Prohibited. And absolutely. it was, yeah, yeah. It was, there, there is a culture of, we're, you know, like drinking was not a part of my college experience. Mm-hmm. And then I moved, I moved into LA with these like crazy art school kids, basically. And yeah. I was like, whoa, okay, is this happening? is a different vibe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I would, I would be the guy coming out onto the porch at like 3.30 AM mm-hmm. with like, Hey, Hey guys, I know I've got to work tomorrow. <laughs> I don't need to work early, but it but is I mean- almost 4 AM. Like. Dude. Maybe maybe we could wrap this up. Uh, I I was I was that guy in college with my roommates. I I my freshman year I got hooked up with this guy that was from Jersey, Scott Lures, who's a comedian now, and uh-huh. he uh, he was a fun guy. He was always always very funny, but he has that Jersey attitude, which you know kind of it, it's something that's formed from being from one of the worst places in the world. <laughs> Jersey is awful. I just went. I just went back for a wedding, and it's just a. It's just a terrible state. No wonder that people kept on exploring into Indian-infested wilderness to find something better. Because <laughs> New Jersey is terrible. It's an awful state. So he comes and, and has this kind of sharp tongue about. With, and think I, I like this guy. He's he's fun. He's he's quippy. You know, he, he's mm-hmm. hilarious. He joins up with these other guys who are just absolutely bacchanalian masters of destruction yeah and he says like i got a great idea how about we all get together and have an apartment this is my sophomore year of college and i didn't have the stones to actually say "Eh, maybe not i'm gonna go do my own thing i was just terrified of change i went along with them and it was nothing but bong water (laughs) and and coming home drunk and pissing in places that shouldn't be pissed in and it was and Uh, getting arrested and getting called like they would get arrested and call like say hey can you come bail us out it was it was so bad exploring the the myriad varieties of uh, ice beer. Oh gosh, there was so much terrible, terrible beer, and so much headaches, and and, and so, many, <laughs> so many cigarettes. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I moved to LA in 2008, and immediately went on tour, and and thought like, ah, oh, my life has changed. I made it. Who'd you go on tour with? Uh, I went on tour with Greg Glasswell. Cool. And he and, was on tour with who? Wait, do you remember? Uh, he was opening for Ingrid Michaelson at the time. Okay. Um, yeah. They were not. They weren't together. But. Not yet. Uh, but, uh, and that was like, yeah, that was, that was a big moment for me. Like my first tour. And what were the crowds like? Uh, the crowds were great, man. It was such a positive, like I, I at the time I didn't realize how lucky or, you know, how good I had it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say every tour I've been on has been a really positive experience, but this was like a really special thing. You know, I met, uh, 
I met a, a, a really talented artist named, I, I mean, beyond Ingrid, who's just so fucking talented, mm-hmm. um, Ali Moss, who's a Great. amazing, amazing singer and guitar player and songwriter, mm-hmm. was on that tour uh, backing up Ingrid. Uh, Chris Kuffner, who's a really phenomenal producer and a great dude yeah and a great dude and a great player was there too and brandon was on that tour and it was just like this big family mm-hmm. that was out a guy named casey jost was who is like a r- really up-and-coming comedian hmm. um in new york now at the time he was just doing merch oh wow but was one of the funniest fucking guys i had ever met oh, dude, and now nice. you know now he's like you know he i think he was uh, I'm gonna fuck up his resume. He's been a writer. I think he was a writer on Fallon, and oh damn, and like he's got people from SNL coming in to do his like you know like bi monthly show. Oh, that's badass. Uh, that he does constantly. He's a really funny guy. So he had um, to be a, a kick on the bus. Now you, this is your first tour. It's a pretty. It's a pretty sizable tour. It's not like the typical band tour because more, more often than not, when people go on tour, they you know just eat a dick and travel, <laughs> <laughs> travel in a stinky van like across you know. Yeah, this was and- this was like a sedan tour. So we were both doing strip. Both Ingrid and uh, and Greg were doing stripped down bands. Oh yeah. Um. So they were in like a van. We were in. Uh, a van, basically. It was okay. two, like, Toyota Siennas, basically. Okay, so this is the earlier in the stage of things before before the big money came through and, and anything like that. Yeah, it was sort of like Ingrid had done some full band tours before, but mm. was like, you know, like, uh, it was probably in a place where we she was the waiting for some again. licensing checks to come through still, and, and but still wanted to do, like, a national tour. Yeah. So she did... Yeah, stripped down three piece band. Greg did a three piece band with me and Brandon. And yeah. uh, anyway, I came home from that and was like, "My life has changed." Mm-hmm. And then promptly went back to my day job for four more years. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> um, what was the day job? The day job was uh, I answered phones for a uh, internet uh, web host mm-hmm. and like voiceover IP company. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, they were they were very cool. They would let me go out for like a month or two at a time, occasionally, wow. and, and still do tours. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that, you had the safety of that job. Yeah, I would always I would always come back to it. And then uh, in 2011, I got a call to audition for a singer named Christina Perry. Mm-hmm. And then um, that was that was where you know i got they gave me the job and they're like oh and by the way we're going to be working for the next like 14 months okay so, so the, yeah, I was that like, was... all right now now i need to quit my job and yeah. actually actually do the thing how'd that feel it was great yeah yeah it yeah. was it was really uh i remember that night i got the call it's funny a lot of people some people who are like pretty great friends of mine now were there that night like ashton likes he's in a band called the absolute Mm -hmm. was there that night we didn't know each other hardly at all but you know he was like high-fiving me and so you start you you quit the job now when did you start thinking about doing your own stuff doing the roof beam carpenter stuff uh since i started my first band was in college yeah it was with uh daniel ryan and brandon walters who I've mentioned several times by now. You guys were um, doing who that. are in the Roof Beam Carpenters now. Yeah, um, we had a we had a shitty band in college mm-hmm. um, called Champion Vinyl. Um, <laughs> we had like literally like four songs, mm-hmm. uh, and we were together. You know, the band the band was a band for like two years. We would we would try to rehearse at least once a week. Oh wow, I didn't know it was um, that dedicated. It, it, I mean, that was the goal. We 
some 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 months were better than others, but we yeah. would usually get together once a week and run through songs. And mm-hmm. you know, I would just write these pretentious nine minute long songs. I didn't know anything about songwriting. Yeah. Um, and the songs were really bad and we would like cover Dave Matthews and oh, it was, no. it was really, oh, no. you know, you know that feel, it's like everyone has to go through it unless they're a genius. Yeah. Uh, and preferably if you're a songwriter, start playing, you know, like any, I, I don't know anyone who's young and listening to this for, for some reason, mm-hmm. if you're out there, um, start now yeah. or, or anyone really anyone who's listening to this and you want to become a songwriter, you just, there's going to be a period where you're playing shows that suck Absolutely. and your friends come and they give you these pain smiles afterwards. And they, 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 they try some effusive kind of way of like a compliment going like, man, you were up there the whole time. You didn't fall yeah, down once. Like, hey man, you really look like you're having fun. Oh, dude, um, I had this moment with a friend of mine, uh, uh, Corey Becker who plays guitars with, uh, with this band on Jive Records, I think actually I don't know if they're on Jive anymore. But um, uh, the lead singer, they're, they're both they're really really rocky and, and very ultra hip. The lead singer's wife directed that biopic uh, of the Runaways with uh-huh. Dakota Fanning and all that. Uh, so they're very hip, very cool. And he came to one of my shows with a full band and, and said, "Yeah, man, you're exactly where I think you should be." <laughs> oh. oh, it's so bad. Looking oh. back, on it, it's uh, like like. Like in my development, he's checking on me like I'm an ant farm. And yep, those tunnels look pretty good, man. Yeah, it's oh, it's it's, so it's yeah, it's harsh. Um, but it's just there's no way around that, no. you know. Um, no, you got to work through. You're exactly right. You have to work through the crap. You have everyone's yeah, I mean, got a pile of crap that you have to plow through. Your, your options are either to toil away by yourself mm-hmm. and then just just like. Be an, an innately good performer, mm-hmm. and there are some people who are like that. Like Christina Perry, who who I tour with, is like that. She just ha- has always had it. Yeah, but even then, she still had to go through her open mic phase. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I there's think a learning curve. Well, absolutely. There's a there's a thing that it's only only happens with the digital media and the fact that you know it's pretty much free virtually to store these things and to put them out onto the web. And this kind of vomitus of the immediate, whatever immediately happens, you just put it out on uh, on YouTube. So everything is recorded. Like our our baby steps from from being a young songwriter to actually the fully fleshed out person. In the past, it was just like you just didn't get any attention. And if you had a bad gig, like only those four or five people that actually decided to show up would see it. Now right. it, it's everything's etched in stone. I remember I had this gig over in. Uh, I had this gig at Room 5 here in L.A., and uh, it was a last-minute thing. I was filling in for someone else who like, had some health problem or something like that, and I didn't have an opportunity to really push it or promote it. I had a little bit of an opportunity, but I didn't really lean into it. You know, I yeah, wasn't really yeah, feeling yeah. it. I was feeling depressed like I normally am most of my life, and uh, and I think that one person had showed up, and there was, more, <laughs> there was more staff than there was people in the crowd, yeah, and yeah, about yeah. song three, the waitress came up to me uh, on stage and said, hey, man, do you mind just doing, like, one more and then calling it? Because, I mean, like, you're the last band, the la- two bands after yeah, you just canceled. Yeah. Uh, we kind of want to go home. <laughs> On the mic, she said this. Yeah, that's oh. it's real, man. It's awful. It's, it's, and I was, you know, like, I was, it, I'm really glad I, I, uh, I was, you know, we were able, one, me and, me and those guys were able to have that experience together because, um, getting getting a band off the ground is really hard yeah. and and understand like oh we suck uh-huh. we suck and people are not enjoying this mm-hmm. is that's that's an important 
that's an important step naturally from there you've got to go okay it's it's now like i am not a gift to the world i need to give the world something i need to actually entertain people i need to bring something to the table yeah and you grew up with supportive parents and i as as did i and so a lot of just standing up there and not completely falling apart you feel as though like look everybody i did it can i get some rewards now exactly yeah, that that not that I am not a special snowflake to paraphrase Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club. You know? Yeah, it's it, that was I mean that was a really important step. Uh, I was lucky enough to have had the opportunity to hop on and do some shows at Hotel Cafe mm-hmm. and suck. Yeah, but with no pressure because mm-hmm. nobody was expecting anything. It was like me and Brandon came on and you know he had a couple songs, I had a couple songs. We I remember I went to that gig. That was a great gig. I, I thought the music was great. I thought your stage presence was naturally not not like you hadn't been doing it really. Yeah, it was. But it one was, thing though, one, one thing though, I will say this: I watched the show that you and Brandon did. You guys split the set. I think was that, that yeah. Thing? You split it, um, and then you took that gig with Christina Perry, and then you traveled all around the world to parts unknown, just being in front of thousands and thousands of people. And when you came back, dude, you were a different performer entirely. You changed dramatically. Yeah, it's. I mean, that, and that's that. That's just comes from doing it. You know, mm-hmm. once, once you're on, and uh, that, yeah, it's, it's one thing to like, you know, play in front of your friends, mm-hmm. uh, or play in front of your college or like rally the troops and yeah. play, play a show to 40 people. To at, play to a hot cafe. room. Yeah. It's, it's another thing to like, you know, be playing at Hyde Park for 50,000 people. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that has very little to do with me. I just was lucky enough to have been on board like mm-hmm. on 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 the team for that one still feels good though but I mean, but it, it i mean to it have just, all that it, love and admiration pointed in your general direction it yeah it's less that i think and more uh having the opportunity to just get all of those i mean from that point on there's not a lot of you'll still have moments of like nervousness mm-hmm. but for the most part it's just like dude i've i've played everywhere now yeah i've played everywhere for any sized crowd yeah and that's not a tired thing that's kind of like a like a worn in uh it's kind of- just yeah it, it it takes away like I'll, I'll make an analogy uh i like personally as a as a person i have no shame about my body mm-hmm. and i don't think that's a good thing or a bad thing that's uh-huh. just that's just the fact and the re one of the reasons i don't have it is because i ran track in high school and college where you're wearing these tiny, tiny, tiny ass shorts. Yeah. And they don't leave much to the imagination. You know, your package is kind of like suspended suspended in like a latex cocoon. Mm -hmm. And no uh, one's, no one's really wondering, you know, your gender. Yeah, exactly. And then you're also wearing these very flimsy, like singlets. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's all out there. Yeah. And it's, if you do that, like 500 times, in high school and college, it's like everyone has seen what my body looks like. And so you just get to wander around in your underwear. I, yeah, I don't, it's not that I think I look good or bad per se. Like, I, I at this point, I don't care anymore. Yeah. And so you've been on stage uh, countless places, enormous crowds with Christina I, Perry. With Yeah, and in that way, I've I've felt like naked. Yeah. And, and now this shame is gone, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's um, a good thing. That can only be a good thing for a performer. Now you've got, um, I know that, coming up you're going to be working on a crowdsourcing for yeah this this will be an interesting experiment because 
I don't have any fans per se. <laughs> I think you have fans, man. I think you're selling yourself short. I my I, ha- I have a lot of friends mm-hmm. who who are supportive. Listen, um, friends who are supportive are merely just fans who know your last name. Uh, That's I guess. pretty much it, you know. Or and maybe where you live and have your cell phone number. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but, but I mean, like like. If we're, if we're going to talk about like the clear delineation, I'm a fan of yours. I, I remember the first time that I heard that EP, uh, I thought, well, fuck, this really raises the game. I obviously need to probably be better at my job. In oh, the best thanks, of ways. Man. No, it's absolutely true, man. I will say there is a song. I don't know if it's released now. You can tell me whether it is or not. Uh, Make Me a Stone. That song is absolutely phenomenal. That yeah, that has not been officially released. Is that going to be coming out on this next record? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, to to answer your or to to go with that line of line of thought, I am going to be doing a crowdsourced. Um, um. The project. The hook is just that my very very talented friend Kyle, who was one of the guys that I moved to LA with, mm-hmm. um, just a really really talented, brilliant filmmaker. Um, came to town and then we did a documentary style sort of like I guess it would the form it's going to take is a web series mm-hmm. about me and I guess it, a, part of it springs from just my view on crowdsourcing it's the character is me but it's not it's it's the character John Titterington yes it's it's not me as a person mm-hmm. but it's like for example like in the movie Patton yeah George S. Patton probably didn't there probably was never a time where like a German bomber flew over his headquarters and he pulled out a sidearm and started shooting at it. Yeah. It's artistic license. He, he didn't a... do that, but he ought to have. Yeah. It's, it's within the spirit. And I think it's, it's very meta. I obviously, I, I've, I've seen a little bit of the, well, yeah. Uh, and you're in it. Little... You're very funny in it. Um, it's, it's basically like, uh, borderline farcical, but very rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, meta. Doing, it, it's basically a web series where I'm going around trying to get a video made and I'm just just annoying the hell out of my friends. Yeah, it's got and, a great it's got great guests. I don't want to give any of them up because they're 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 really it's it's a solid solid thing. It, it'll be as entertaining as the album itself, which I think is a very it's a stroke of genius to be able to do that. In terms of that versus the major label model, you're mm. still asking people for money. You, you really are. You just kind of you're asking them specifically, and and maybe before it actually gets made, but it's kind of almost like the pre-order model. I know I did one my own self, and it was. I will say it was during the campaign itself. It was one of those trying times, uh, as far mm-hmm. as because I'm not one of those people that uh, is a good salesman. I I have often said of myself that I probably couldn't sell a bucket of water to a man on fire. <laughs> it's just I mean I don't know if you want it. I mean I see that your like arm is engulfed in flames or anything like that, and this might be able to put it up. But I mean whatever. That's kind of my whole the, the vibe. Wa- the water's kind of dirty. I mean I don't know. It's it's okay. It's good. you know I'm just gonna keep on moving on. You know? Oh you want it? Okay. Well you know maybe. Hold let me come back. I gotta go check with my boss. It's and it's bad. It, it, and you know, I'm, I'm working on that personally. I'm actually just started therapy, which is going to be fun. Uh, yeah. But uh, once I get some money, I, I'm probably I probably need to start. <laughs> listen, I got I got a place for you. You're gonna love it. It's good. It's great. It's cheap. It's not. It's All not right. bad. I mean, it, it, uh, uh, until then, though, this will have to. This will have to suffice. This kind of cathartic talking. Now, when you write your songs, the space from which you write your songs, um, a lot of them have a lot of pretty intense, dark themes. But there is a there's a world in which you create. Uh, with the songs where where do you think that voice comes from with your writing uh there seems to be a narrative uh, or a narration being told yeah that's i i think i think that's valid um it's very uncharismatic to talk about your own songs but uh like i, I 
that's the best way I've, I feel like I can attack this question that that you've posed. There's a song. One of my songs is called Annabelle, which is mm-hmm. very. Um, that song is an expression of of that feeling I had. I, I talked about earlier how I used to wake up in the middle of the night crying. Mm-hmm. The song Annabelle came out of that. Yeah. And so, are that, you Annabelle in a certain respect? I am not Annabelle, but Annabelle. Annabelle shares some qualities that I have and that my sister has. Hmm. Um, One of the details about the song is that she used to doodle on her notebooks Hmm. in junior high, which is something my sister did. She, she used to write, she would write her name Hmm. over and over again on, on, uh, she would write Julianne Titterington in a compulsive way in a, in a borderline compulsive. Yeah. I, I, it, it wasn't, uh, I don't want to put it in those. I don't want to frame it that way, as mm-hmm. if she was like OCD because she's she's not. But that was some. It was like it was like she was trying to perfect it or something. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Annabelle does in the song. And I don't always create backstories for my characters. Sometimes I'm writing from I'm writing about actual people that I know, so mm-hmm. their backstories are already there. But for that particular one, there was something about writing about a fictional character that was that made me able to express a very deep emotional um pain that i had and it was basically like expressing my angst over not feeling like i was in the right place yeah, through catharsis yeah, yeah. I, like i i felt like i was a cog in in someone else's machine mm-hmm. and uh and I felt like I was eventually just going to go crazy if I, and that that's being overdramatic, but yeah, no, I mean, we're both this, emotional guys. Yeah. And we're also paid to be overdramatic. This is one thing I want, I wanted to bring up to you briefly about you, you've, you and I, we both kind of share our own isms and schisms when it comes to neurosis, but personally you have got some of, uh, some prototypical neurosis. You're you're almost you're like you're a very heady can, character. Can you give me an example? I've you, never thought about it in those terms. No, I, I, I in honesty, if if I had uh, if I if you gave me a view of like of my friends, I would say, well, well, John is probably like the only like Englishman Jew that I know. That's uh, you. You've got this great neurosis. You're you're very much like an Alvy singer in a certain <laughs> in certain respects. If you get if you get wound up, you get that way. But I think. Uh, I share that with you, and I, that strikes a chord in me because, like, I I was the little kid that said, "Oh fuck!" I said, "Shit!" Oh shit! I said, "Fuck!" Oh my god! What am I gonna do? I'm gonna freak out. Like, I I remember one time my dad sat me down when I was 12 years old, and he said, "You know what? In seven years, you're gonna be in college, and you're gonna be moved away, and you're not gonna be a kid anymore." And instead of like me appropriating whatever point it was, you know, that I need to start thinking about my actions or blah, 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 or that like, isn't it going to be great to be on my own or blah, blah. I just thought like, oh no, in seven years, I'm not going to be around my parents anymore. I'm going to be old. That means I'm going to be older than I'm going to, I'm going to die one day. One day I'm going to die. And then I just went through this whole machination. I remember Uh weeping openly in front of my dad, just because he said that I was going to graduate in high school and go to college. That's, that's, that's definitely something we share. Yeah. But Um, the neurosis, I mean like, like, do you write from that neurosis? Do you, is that neurosis get in the way of your writing? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I really don't know what role that plays in my writing. Hmm. Um, the neurosis, I think, certainly helps me finish songs because hmm. I get if the lyrics aren't 
perfect. If I'm not sad, yeah. If they're not perfect, if I'm not satisfied with them, then I, you know, I, I can't let it go. Yeah. Well, there's 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 a line in Annabelle that 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 song where it says, you know, it, it isn't. She referring to her handwriting. It isn't looking right. That's yeah. definitely that's definitely something that that line comes from my own issues for mm-hmm. sure because um, I've got this weird with perfectionism Mm -hmm. that I don't share in stuff that would actually be useful, like hygiene and cleanliness. Uh Like I've, I've, you know, if I could take that part of my personality and apply it to like, you know, getting, getting my life together, organizing, yeah, organizing my life, Mm -hmm. I would, I would be a much more functional adult than I am. I understand. I understand. But yeah, man, I mean, I, I, I would say so much of my writing process comes from trying, wanting to articulate wanting to articulate uh, an emotion that's difficult to articulate. Mm-hmm. Like the song Entomology was about me me meeting my ex-girlfriend. And that's a very specific thing mm-hmm. when you you meet someone that you, you're broken up with and you're not sad that you broke, that, that you two are, are not dating anymore. Yeah. But you love them deeply mm-hmm. and you remember what you liked about them so much. Oh geez. That's a, that's a great feeling that I, I, I think when I was 16 or 17, I found out what that was and what the meaning was Ennui, just that sweet sadness, that kind of like vestation almost. Yeah. And it, and it comes from a place of love uh-huh. and, and, but it's, it's like a painful love. Oh yeah. You know? I, just, I used to sit in that man. Like, like my early twenties, that <laughs> was sweet. That was my feels juice. So good. Oh yeah. I, I would just watch that. The remake of great expectations with Ethan Hawke over and over <laughs> and over again. Just find me a sad movie, turn that on. And I just like, I would just pine a big pining, pining over no one, pining just in general. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You know, uh, after, after she, you know, we, we met just briefly. She, she came over to my house and we just sat on the porch and talked. And had a, you know, it was a really, really great time. It was very, it was a really special thing, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I really, I did and still do wish her the best and think she's a great, really interesting person that mm-hmm. I'm super glad I'm not, I'm not with anymore. Mm-hmm. After she left, I was in such, that put me in such a weird funk that mm-hmm. I had, you know, and that became, that funk became that song, Entomology. Yeah. Well, um, it's a great song. I love that song. So what's going on for the future? We've got the the campaign, the crowdsourcing campaign that's going to come up. Are you going to be touring at all or playing any shows? Um, I I'm still still working on the band right now. Hmm. We've been playing around LA and kind of. I, I recently added Phil Cronengold to the lineup. That's great, and he he is he is just a monster. Hmm. Um, but, so I'm still like I'm moving more away from playing the the needlessly complicated piano and guitar parts that uh-huh. I write for myself. And I've sort of put those onto Phil. He's a, he's a better piano player than me. He's a much, much better guitar player than me. And to give him those components of the songs and have mm-hmm. him just like totally turn them inside out and, and add, add another l- layer of complexity to them. Well, you guys are cut from the same cloth, I will say. We, we are, it, is, it, is, it is freakish, I will say. Mm-hmm. Like, me and you are cut from the same cloth. Me and him were like... I mean, our backgrounds, Phil, 
started out in jazz, mm-hmm. worked an IT job, yeah. and gigged on the side in New York. It mm-hmm. was, and you know, that's just God being what redundant. Yeah, yeah, I know, man. It's nuts when you meet those people and you and you kind of have that 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 weird, bizarre uh, uh, electricity between each other. And well, you, and and the fact that it been and by all conventional understanding of human interaction we should hate each other oh yeah you're you're it's it's like magnets you know the similar sides just re- but we don't we just it's just when you just I mean, dovetail into each other like maybe maybe one day we'll get there but for yeah. now it's just been like uh whenever we're around each other it's just like it's it's yeah it's like we're you guys you're like nerdy in love yeah you're something. a nerdy musical uh mcs or if, if we weren't both attracted to women we would be uh yeah i don't know this, yeah, you, this is getting into a weird area yeah, where you, phil's not able to defend himself oh he will we'll bring I, him in i've got a huge man crush on him mm-hmm. um, be known. if i was attracted to men sexually i would uh i would absolutely uh court him you guys would make a great couple we, I mean, we would i mean like maybe he maybe had, maybe we would be terrible there'd be a lot of gear everywhere and like maybe one of you would have like a clean streak or something like that uh but uh, who knows D- doubtful. doubtful um anyway so <laughs> all, all that to say i'm i'm still working on the still working on dialing the band in i'm doing mm-hmm. more singing and and working on that's that's a big part of it too is where i started from was me playing really needlessly complicated keyboard parts and mm-hmm. just being stuck in that world on uh-huh. stage while I'm ostensibly there to entertain people. Yeah. And just having this like constipated look on my face. Yeah. Do you like being the front man now? I do. Yeah. It's, it's been great to like, now that I'm free of that for at least this, this period of the band, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm free to like actually look out in the, Oh, Oh, there's people out there. Oh, yeah. oh wait oh, a minute. They came to see I me. can look them in the eye mm-hmm. or I can actually try to connect with people. Yeah. And that's, why the songs were written in the first place absolutely man that's that's it's been it's been something that i've really enjoyed exploring so anyway i would i would love to do a west coast tour in the near future Mm -hmm. just figure out a way to do it Mm -hmm. um but uh you know obviously i need to get the record done first and and and, uh yeah dude i'm looking forward to hearing it man thank you for coming in dude yeah absolutely yeah it's a blast all right that john titterington of the root beam carpenters here on Shark Brain. So there he is, John Titterington, a fellow man in the trenches. I wanted to put this piece of music in at the very end because I failed to mention in the interview that John actually played on my last record. This is the title track, Kill the Past. He's a phenomenal player and I really appreciate having him as a friend. I feel honored for that. Continue to spread the word about Shark Brain. Subscribe on iTunes or at sharkbrainpodcast.com. Have a wonderful week. I wish you all the very, very best. <laughs>